star that rises out of Jacob and the scepter that rises out of Israel. And a new star you showed yourself as God. And lying in the manger, you showed yourself as God and man. So we confessed you to be the one Christ. In your great mercy, grant us the grace of seeing you. And show us the brightness of your light. And all the darkness of our sins may be driven away, even as we long to see you. Refresh us with the joy of seeing you in your holy word. Amen. 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 I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here, and it's so good to be sharing this moment with all of you this morning or whenever it is that you're watching this. Though I want to encourage you, if it's possible to watch it together with the rest of the body on Sunday morning, if it's possible, I encourage you to do that. Uh, there's something about being as much in proximity with, with each other as is possible. Uh, but anyways, it's, it's good to have you here. I want to thank uh, Sue Eck and Jerry and Roxanne Poindexter, uh, who are part of this video. They're old-timers of Woodland Hills Band. They go back a long way. Hello, Sue. <laughs> we go back a long way. And, and Palma and Dave McClarty uh, for playing that role in uh, this Advent little video we have, The Lighting of the Candle. We are in this series called Illuminate, uh, and we are following the Advent calendar this year. We don't all every year, but uh, this year we just thought it would be good to tap into the church tradition at a time when so much else is just shaky and, and uh, seems ethereal and not solid. Uh, we want to tap into a practice and tap into prayers that Christians have been praying uh, for the last 2,000 years uh, in, in some cases. Um, and so we're lighting the candle. That's a traditional way of, of celebrating Advent where you're saying the lights are still on and we're still waiting for you to come home. Uh, we're, we're, we're looking forward to the return of, of, of Jesus Christ. And um, at the beginning of the message and at the end of the message, we'll have, we have we had the traditional prayer, uh, ancient prayer that they prayed, and then I'll be praying a, uh, a universal church prayer from the uh, Common Book of Prayer later on uh, at the end, end of this message. So we're in the uh, holiday season. And as Shauna said, we hope that you are celebrating the holiday season. Uh, it would be kind of understandable if you're having a little more trouble doing that than usual. <laughs> uh, you know, I have, I, I have a ritual that I always have to, to get into the Christmas spirit. I always watch Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. I think it's the best cartoon holiday special ever, ever done. Um, and uh, uh, I watched it the other night, and it didn't quite do the trick. I, I suppose if, uh, uh, 
If ever there's going to be a year where you're going to be struggling not to get in touch with your inner Grinch, it will be this year. I'll say more about that a little bit later on. But uh, hey, I wanted to, uh, before I get to my message, show you this little photo, a little blast from the past. Would you uh, show, there, look at that, look at that bunch of, okay, this is Ephraim Smith on, the, on, on my left, uh, and that's Shane Claiborne on the right, and that's me in the middle, and we're on set for this movie. Now, if, if some of you go back seven years or so, it, you remember there was a time where I didn't cut my hair for like six months? Actually, it was like six and a half months. Uh, and I, it was because I, I was preparing for this role in this movie as a homeless person. And uh, uh, N.T. Wright is also, a, we make uh, guest appearances in here. Uh, and the movie's called Chasing the Rain. And it is really a good movie. I want to encourage you to watch this. Now, it's not a holiday special in the genre of Elf uh, or, you know, one of those upbeat, happy, nor is it a spiritual movie in the sense of uh, like you know, heaven is real or where it's just going to be all edification. It tells you the truth about, it, it's, a, it's, it's a movie that's spiritual in the sense of asking the right questions and showing the, oh, the angst behind the human situation. It just explores kind of the, the, the question of how can we have hope in this world? It's really, it feels to me, uh, Shelly and I just watched it the other night, and it feels like it's a perfect film for uh, 2020. I'll warn you, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a gritty film. It's, it's a realistic film. I think it's all the, the better for that reason, but uh, it's not like every, all, all of it's pleasant watching. So anyways, you can check that out. Uh, and, you know, and why, why not? I mean, after all, this is your uh, pastor's debut as a movie star. You know, and, and, and I think when we come back together, I'll, I'll, I'll sign some autographs if you want. You know, this is, I'm waiting for my Oscar nomination. I hope that comes pretty soon. And I'm wondering, I mean, what hair is like better, that back there or this here? I'm going with this here. You could even see I was balding back then. It's all thin here and gets all thick out here. And I was looking more and more like Bozo and I don't want to do that. So anyways, uh, so we're in the third week of this Advent series. And uh, the theme of this weekend is joy. Joy. Um, and so the reading for this week is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And it goes like this. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, because look, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. I bring you good news of great joy. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, I pray your anointing on this message. Uh, it feels like it couldn't be more timely. Uh, we couldn't need more joy than right now, uh, myself included. And so, Lord, use this to be a, a means of encouraging your people to find the beauty of the true good news in the midst of a situation that is far from ideal, that is actually very painful. Be with us here. And even as we're apart physically, unite us together spiritually. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, No, come on, you can do better on that. And all God's people said, Oh, listen to that thunderous crowd. I have to imagine that in my head uh, to stay in this thing. You're all out there. Yeah, hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. So the theme is joy. Normally, this shouldn't be a hard message to preach, right? Christmas and joy go together like peanut butter and jelly, bread and butter, pickles and mayonnaise for some. Uh, it's, 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 it's what the season's about. 
In normal seasons, preaching on joy is a piece of cake, but this is 2020 and there's nothing normal about 2020. <laughs> and preaching on joy, I will tell you, it's something of a challenge. Shauna was chipper and celebratory and stuff, and I'll tell you, I, I wanna get there, but I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm inching my way there. But it's just that this season is just, there's so much, I mean, we've had, this for starters, uh, in America here, we have over 315,000 people have died of this pandemic that we're in the middle of. And thank God there's a vaccine coming and there's hope on the way. Although they're saying that we probably won't get that, the average person anyways, not till the summer or even the fall, some are saying now. Um, and, 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 and the deaths keep on, on skyrocketing. Uh, it, it's, there's, now an American dies every 30 seconds of COVID. Uh, there's more people who die on average per day as of this last week. Uh, more people, Americans die per day from COVID than, than were taken out in 9-11. It's just a, a terrible situation. And in a situation like that, you know, it's, it's, oh, joy to the world. It doesn't flow from your lips as naturally as in other seasons. Uh, and now they just found, I saw this last night, they have a new strain. Uh, they found out in the UK, Mary, did you hear this? Uh, a new strain that is up to four times as, as, as uh, it can transmit four times easier than this one. It's not more lethal, but it spreads much faster. Oh, oh joy to the world. So that's causing some uh, you know, leaders to have to put down restrictions again. They're locking down parts of London all over again. And people are ticked off about that and they're mad. And here in America, we've got this you know, plague fatigue going on and people are getting angry and grouchy and whatnot. Joy to the world. And now there's millions of Americans who believe that this election was fraudulent and that, um, uh, that, that, that uh, Trump won the election. and just reveals that this country is so polarized, living in different universes, and how can we get anything done? And, and, and pray about that situation because um, we are skating on very thin ice uh, here. And, and so pray that we get through this without violence erupting in the streets. Uh, joy to the world. And uh, you got millions of people who are still out of work. You got businesses that are going under. Uh, there's racial tension just beneath the surface. Uh, it, 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 it's a powder keg. It could go off at any time. Joy to the world. And so the whole season, it just sucks. <laughs> there's so much in this world right now that is just not joyous. Just being honest here, and, and about six months ago, I preached a message called Lamenting A to Z, and I mentioned there how on top of all of the, the other stuff, all this global stuff and societal stuff and political stuff, on top of all of that, the pandemic and the rest, uh, Shelly and I have just been, just been getting pulverized. Uh, and, in any other year, this would still, take away all of that stuff, and this would still be the worst year of our life. Uh, we've just, well, it's like Murphy's Law incarnate. 2020, Murphy's Law incarnate. Whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. It's like, it's almost comical. It's like, really? Come on. It's coming again and again and again. Relationship stuff, financial stuff. It's just, the worst has been the physical stuff. Uh, among other things, I've had kidney stones twice this year, and, and Shelly's broken her back twice this year, and we've just had all sorts of all these ailments. Uh, the most irritating one now is, is, it's only as long as I'm whining to you all, but I just uh, let it out there. I get to whine once in a while. 
but uh, I've had chronic on and off back issues all year long, uh, and it's been getting, it's been increasing, so I'm back in physical therapy trying to get this corrected, but what really concerns me is that it's affecting my drumming, and drumming is like one of the most positive things in my life. It's the only thing in my life where I can keep on getting better at. I'm learning how to speed metal drum, and I'm still improving, and that feels so good. When you're losing, the rest of your life is about loss, here's a gain. So I love drumming, and I've been doing more of drumming, but apparently that's part of what's causing this tension in my lower back, and it's to the point where my, my right foot's going numb. Uh, and, and I told Shelly, pray that I don't lose drumming because I will be an unhappy camper if that happens. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, so I'm very motivated to not let that happen. I'm, I'm working hard to get my full back back because when this COVID season is done, my band, Not Dead Yet, is going to throw a party. It's an after-COVID party, and we're going to rock and roll, and you're all invited. So come there, and I'll show you my new drum chops, assuming I can still drum. All that is just a way to say, preaching on joy right now just doesn't flow naturally from my lips. It's, wah, 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 poor Greg. I, I'm just trying to be honest here. Your word of faith Christians are probably thinking, man, well, that negative confession shows a lack of faith. Be that as it may, I'm telling you where I am. And, and, and I suspect a lot of you are kind of in the same situation. Uh, when it rains, it pours. On top of all the ordinary miserable stuff we have in 2020, I've just met so many other people who have said, it's uncanny how much stuff just piles on top of that. But as I began to put this message together, precisely because it didn't come natural to me, it wasn't easy, but the unease really made it clear about why I need this message so much, and I think a lot of us need to hear this message so much. Because um, the kingdom joy that we're going to be talking about is the kingdom joy that is it's tailor-made to, uh, it's, it's a joy you find in the midst of misery. In some ways, I wonder if right now, in this miserable year of 2020, which thank God is coming to a close, if maybe celebrating Christmas in this year is in some ways more authentic than the way we usually do it. Because usually, you know, it's, it's the whole culture is festive. Everything's yay, yay, yay. Now, of course, we know that not everything is yay, yay, yay. There's plenty of misery going around. But we cover it up with this good cheer and all of our spending and consumerism gone crazy. And we say joy to the world. And it's easy to say joy to the world when everyone's putting on a joyful face and you know, it's all celebratory and you know, laughing and cheering and getting together with family and all that wonderful stuff. But see, the world that Jesus was born into wasn't an all-yay world, a world in which everyone's happy and things are going well and whatever. It, he was born into a world that was under oppression. Israel was being oppressed by Rome and, and suffering terribly. He was born in an age of yearning, uh, of sadness. And yet, his coming brought joy, and the joy was all the more beautiful because everything else was so dark. The light really shines when there's darkness all around it. And Jesus himself was born in miserable conditions. You know, the, he didn't get a luxury hotel or anything. He got an animal-crowded barn, a uh, smelly, stinky barn, sleeping in a, in a feeding trough. 2020 is the perfect situation to celebrate the coming of Jesus because that gets that true joy. You know, one of the things that is outstanding among the early Christians, just really impressive, is they were able to celebrate, to rejoice, authentically have joy in the midst of the worst situations you can imagine. Um, here's one example uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Now, flogging in the ancient world wasn't a little slap on the wrist. Uh, they, they, these things, 
Their whips were designed to take skin. So we, we didn't know how many stripes they, were, they, they, they received, but even getting one of these was excruciating. So they're flogged, and it was designed to humiliate you. You're brought out in the public square, and everyone laughs as you're being uh, whipped. So when they, 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 they called the apostles, the, the Jewish leaders, and they had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in, in, in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Okay, so here's a warning. Do this again, it's going to be worse. Uh, as they left the council, listen to this. The apostles rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Really amazing. Uh, now, if I was out there preaching and I got arrested and I got whipped and I got humiliated and then told never to preach again, I would consider that a pretty bad day. The apostles, they leave there and they're rejoicing. Uh, they find joy in the suffering. They're not rejoicing that they got whipped, but they're rejoicing that they considered it an honor to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to suffer for the name. Now that phrase, to suffer for the name, is referring, of course, to Jesus. But more specifically, it's, it, it refers to the character of Jesus. A name is, and the, the Hebrew concept of name is, it's, it's your character, um, but it's also your cause. And so they, they rejoiced that they got the opportunity to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of the cause. And it didn't deter them from continuing to preach. Um, because if they got caught, they would be beaten again and, and maybe worse, uh, but they would rejoice all the more for having done that. It didn't deter them at all. So the question is, what makes, what kind of good news is it that can cause people to find joy in the midst of terrible, terrible suffering? You find this throughout the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts 13, for example, Paul and Barnabas, they go out and they're preaching to these pagans. And it doesn't go very well. Uh, it, a riot ends up being created and they got to run for their lives. Um, now see, if, if that was me, if I went out on a preaching crusade to save people and, 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 and the result was that uh, a riot broke out and I had to run for my life, I would be pretty discouraged. That was a pretty bad, you know, preaching rally. <laughs> uh, that didn't go very well, did it? Maybe I'd be a little angry, I don't know. Uh, but the text says that the, these folks were filled with joy. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with joy. You find this at other times throughout the, the book of Acts. They're thrown into prison and they're singing hymns, you know, and praising God. Like they didn't have a care in the world. What kind of good news is able to do that? To cause people to genuinely rejoice in the midst of suffering. Paul, at one point in his life, he's in prison. And prisons in the ancient world were not four-star hotels. Often they were holes in the ground, pretty much. Um, and you got very little food. What food you did get was really bad. And uh, sometimes they were rat infested, uh, windowless, and they're cold in the winter and they're hot in the summer. They're not pleasant places to be. Paul's in one of those for having preached the gospel. And, and, and see, if, 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 I would, if I was writing a letter to somebody in that condition, I think I would probably uh, be in touch with my, my inner Grinch. I, I, I could imagine me saying, you guys, this is just terrible. Oh, and by the way, he's facing execution, even likely execution. Uh, he ended up not being executed, but at this point when he's writing his letter, he says that he's likely going to be uh, executed. And he's not worried about that. He says, in fact, that'd be kind of preferable in some ways. Uh, but I better, I'd rather, I pray that I can live so I can keep on, you know, doing good for the kingdom. But uh, if I was writing a letter in that situation, I'd be maybe saying stuff like, you know, the food here is terrible. It's just, they, I'm starving. They don't give me any of it. And when I do get it, it's just so terrible. And it's cold down here and there's rats down here and, and, and my back is hurting terribly and they won't let me play any drums and my foot's going numb. That's not what Paul does. Uh, 
four chapters, this letter to the Philippians. Uh, he writes this letter to the Philippians and there's four chapters in this book. And in, it's the most, some scholars have argued it's the most joyous book in the Bible. I think they're right. Uh, you find joy mentioned five times in four chapters and rejoice is mentioned seven times in four chapters. Uh, towards the end of the, 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 the letter, he kind of lays out a theme of his. It's, it's, it's really kind of the dominant theme of his whole letter. And it's Philippians 4, verse 14. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, that could be taken as a real trivial sort of thing. The Pentecostal church that I was initially saved in, we had a song, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And, and it's, you know, Especially if it's, if, it's, if it's sung out of a privileged perspective where you haven't really suffered very much. It's easy to say, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. It could be a trivial cliche, but see, this is coming out of, uh, off of the pen of the Apostle Paul. And I submit to you, this guy has earned the right to be heard because he knew what it was to suffer. He's writing in these terrible conditions. And his whole ministry is characterized by that. Hardships and arrests. And, he, he had a lot of trouble he went through. A lot of suffering he went through. A lot of beatings he went through. Almost killed a couple times. But he says, rejoice always. And again, I want to repeat it. Again, I say rejoice. What kind of joy is it that you can say when you're facing execution in this prison in these miserable conditions, what kind of, what, what kind of good news is it that can give you that kind of joy? The, the, the more that people can rejoice in the midst of terrible suffering and circumstances, the more impressive that joy is. And I submit to you that the joy that we have access to in the kingdom is the most impressive kind of joy at all. Of all, because, well, as you're seeing here, it's a joy that, that, that isn't dependent on circumstances. But the most amazing example, of course, the most amazing example of, of someone rejoicing in the midst of miserable circumstances is, let's hear it, Jesus! Absolutely. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, listen to this. It's, a, it's just a beautiful passage. The author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these saints that have gone on before us who suffered and died. He, he just gave a catalog of them leading up to this verse um, in, the, in the previous chapter. <clears throat> Since we're surrounded, oh, by the way, I still have a little of this COVID crap that I'm dealing with in my lungs. So if I yank up a little bit, you know, just smile and pretend like it didn't happen. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight as well as the sin that clings so closely now notice that already is a call to suffer and to sacrifice. And we're following in the footsteps of Jesus. And then he goes on and says, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. It takes perseverance to run this thing that implies sacrifice and suffering. And looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. Now the joy set before him wasn't about being crucified. There's nothing joyous about being crucified. In fact, as he contemplated the crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, you may recall, uh, he sweat drops of blood. I, I, I've read that, that uh, this, this happens. Are, are, you can come under such duress that the corpuscles in your forehead pop and you, 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 your blood gets mixed with sweat. Well, that, was, that, that shows Jesus was under extreme duress. That's why he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way to accomplish what we want to accomplish 
that, that doesn't involve me going to the cross. And those drops of blood, that duress that Jesus was under, it certainly included the physical pain of the, uh, of the crucifixion because the Romans designed crucifixion to, to inflict maximal pain with maximal shame. It was a shameful thing. You got put up there, usually you were naked uh, and, and they had other people, passersby would mock you and things like that and uh, laugh at you. This is considered entertainment for some in the uh, first century. As birds come and start to try to pluck out your eyes as you're hanging there on the cross, it was a terrible, terrible scene. Uh, that was part of what Jesus was anxious about, but I don't think that was the main source of his stress uh, at all. Um, we were talking about the, the all-holy son of God who's, who's foreign to all sin, and he is about to become the sin of the world, uh, of, of humanity, past, present, future. He's going to bear all the sin of the world, and, and he's going to bear the punishment for that sin, which is the inborn natural consequences of sin to alienate us from the Father. And so he's going to experience alienation. That's why he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he's experiencing as the sin bearer of the world. And that's the it's opposite to his nature. The all-holy God now becoming our sin and the perfectly united God now experiencing separation from himself. It, it, and he does that out of love to reveal the, the, the truth of who he is. But Jesus was willing to endure that. I, I, I don't think we can begin to imagine the nightmare that Jesus knew he was going to experience on the cross. And yet for the joy that was set before him, that joy was not about being crucified. No, that, that's going to be a nightmare. But the joy set before him was about this great cloud of witnesses. The joy set before him was him seeing what the cross would accomplish. Uh, the joy that was before him that he saw that motivated him to go through this suffering was the, 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 the joy of seeing the significance of what he was doing, the purpose for why he was doing it. It was the joy of seeing you and me and multitudes of others, of the redeemed, uh, uh, reconciled to God and sharing in his triune love. It's the joy of seeing the whole earth uh, made new and transformed and eradicated from all evil. It's the joy of seeing everyone reconciled to God and, and having the creation finally reflect the glory of God, the shiny love and radiance of God. As Jesus saw that all that would result from the sacrifice he was making, it gave him joy, and that joy motivated him to keep on moving forward. And then the author says to us, be, to be a follower of Jesus means you keep, you keep your eye on him. Uh, you pattern your life on him. He's the author and pioneer of our faith. And so do what he did in whatever ways it comes to you and do it for the reasons he did. For the joy set before him, Jesus was willing to sacrifice and suffer, it suffer incredibly. And that is the call of the disciple. We're called to be willing to sacrifice and suffer as need be and to do it for the joy that is set before us. The joy of knowing that because of what Jesus did in that first Christmas morning and culminated on the cross, because of that, the suffering of the present hour will be replaced by exuberant joy that will be unending. Uh, that's part of the joy that he saw in front of him. Also the joy of just knowing that we get to partner with God and bringing about this transformation of the world. See, here's, here's where the, the kingdom good news or the gospel good news um, and the joy that it brings is very different from good news in the world and the happiness that it sometimes brings. Happiness and joy are two very different things. Uh, we can use them you know, interchangeably sometimes, but here's the thing. Happiness is usually circumstantial. Uh, if your circumstances are going well, you're happy. And if your circumstances are not going well, you're sad. So happiness is, is antithetical or is the opposite of sorrow and suffering and pain. 
you're happy because your circumstances are such that you don't need to suffer and, and be in sorrow and experience any kind of pain. But see, good news joy or the kingdom joy is not at all circumstantial. Uh, kingdom joy is, is dependent on one thing and one thing only, and that is the good news. The good news joy is dependent only on the fact that there is good news, and the good news is that God, our Creator, became a human being, uh, lived this exemplar life, and gave His life on the cross, uh, dying a nightmarish death in order to reveal the truth about who God is, to reveal the love that God is, in order to save us from destroying ourselves, and, to, and in order to secure for us an eternal home where we're sharing in the love and the joy and the peace of the triune God. Uh, if that is true, the, the, the message is this. If you have faith in that and live in that, it will bring you joy, a joy that can't be touched regardless of how terrible your circumstances are. And so kingdom joy is not incompatible with sorrow. In fact, it says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus was a man of sorrow and he was well acquainted with grief. It's understandable because anyone who's going to die that kind of a death and experience what he experienced would be sorrowful. So if there's sorrow, he's a man of sorrow. And yet that same Jesus, precisely when he's sorrowing the most in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was for the joy that was set before him that he said yes to the Father. I'll do it. I, I, he had a clear vision of the significance of what he was doing. So he was miserable, but he's also joyous. You see how that works together? You find the same thing throughout Paul's writings. Um, for example, he says this in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 and 10. Here he says, he's, he's trying to convince the Corinthians of his credentials as an apostle, and he says this, As servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way. Uh, through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, and on and on he goes. And then five verses later he says, we are people who are as, we conduct ourselves as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Uh, as poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, and yet as possessing everything. So Paul's here saying, uh, yeah, yeah, we've been afflicted. We're in heart. We have hardships, calamities. We've been imprisoned, beaten. Our life's been threatened. None of that is fun. Not fun at all. That makes us sad. And yet, though we're sorrowful, we have this joy. The two are not incompatible. And the reason they're not incompatible is because in the, in, in the midst of the sorrow, you can have a faith, you can have a vision, but it's set before you. It's the joy that is set before you. We can have that in all situations, and it can minister joy to us in the present. So here, here's a little glimpse of, of the kind of joy that Paul had before him that motivated him to go through the hardships that he went through. He says in, 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 in Romans 8, and I love this passage just because it's so outlandish. A human being would never be crazy enough to make this up. It's got to be divinely inspired. He says this, I, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and the, he earned the right to be heard. This guy knew what suffering was. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's about to be revealed to us. This is astounding. Paul's saying that when the world is, is, is finally, when God's righteousness runs throughout the world, which means righteousness is a covenantal term that means right relatedness. When God's design for creation is fully implemented, when the kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven in fullness, when, 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 when everything in this new heaven and new earth that, that's going to be brought about when Jesus returns, when everything is, is related the way God designed it to be related, and it's, it's therefore reflecting and participating in the glory of God, when that happens, Paul is saying, well, that glory can't be compared to the sufferings of this present age. Just think for a moment on the sufferings of this present age, and in 2020, it shouldn't be very hard to do. 
The world is the kind of place where some people experience nightmares for the majority of their life. Animals, people, we go through unthinkable sufferings in some instances. And yet Paul has the audacity to say, it stretches me to imagine the coming heaven, the coming kingdom, uh, the transformed world that would be so glorious that it, it just makes all the suffering worth it. That to me would just be a magnificent achievement. Okay, it was all worth it. But Paul's saying a lot more than that. Paul's saying that if you were to compare these things, not only does the glory that will be revealed to us uh, outweigh the sufferings of this present age, but the glory is so great, it renders the sufferings of this present age insignificant. Uh, you put all the sufferings on one scale and the glory that awaits us on the other, and the glory doesn't budge an inch. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't move it at all. And so you can see why Paul was willing to suffer. Because he had a vision of a, a, a coming kingdom that was real to him, concrete to him. It motivated him. And in that glory, he saw that the sufferings he's going through now are going to be rendered insignificant. Uh, one of my favorite authors in the Middle Ages is uh, uh, St. Teresa of Avila. And, and she wrote this at one point. She says, In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Uh, Okay. Do you have a vision? Do you have a vision of where you're headed that is so great that it can renders the worst sufferings you can imagine as though it was just a, a minor inconvenient night in, a, in, in, in an inconvenient hotel? Uh, see, that, 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 that was the joy set before him that motivated Paul to do what he did. And part of that joy included seeing, as it was the case with Jesus, Part of that joy is seeing the significance of what he was suffering for. He was suffering for the name, suffering for the cause, suffering out of kingdom love. As Jesus, it was, it, he, he saw what his suffering would, would produce. He had some kind of a vision about that. That's why he taught, he, he refers to that sometimes in his writings as a reward. Jesus does the same thing. There's a reward waiting for us. And it has to do with what we do with the love and the grace that God has given to us. And so Paul, for example, it, it comes out in a lot of different ways in his writings, but sometimes he uh, talks about how he, uh, he wants to present his saints fully mature on, 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 on the day of the Lord. He was aware that uh, sometime in the future when the Lord returns, uh, what he's done for the kingdom will somehow be presented to him. And he says, I want to present you fully mature. He's got skin in this game. It's his, in his best interest to, that these people are presented fully mature because his reward is seeing the significance of the role that he played in bringing about that maturity. Now, no, you, 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 here's one clear example of that. He talks about laying up treasure. Jesus does the same thing. He talks about running to win the prize. Here, here's an example uh, in First Timothy, or Second Timothy. Listen to this. Paul says to Timothy, uh, as for those who in the present age are rich, and by the way, probably if you're listening to this message, this applies to you because even the poorest among us have uh, conveniences that kings didn't enjoy back then. And if you measure wealth by the number of conveniences you have, well, we're all pretty rich, most likely. You'd have to be uh, in destitute uh, in the modern world to be at the level that uh, people generally were in uh, the ancient world. But it says, tell the rich, that's us, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on, on the uncertainty of riches, but rather to set their hope on God who richly provides us all these things for our enjoyment. They are to do good. The rich are to do good and to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share. Thus storing up for themselves uh, the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that is really true life. So he says, Timothy, uh, tell the rich not to be haughty. Now, it's interesting. 
Uh, he doesn't say, tell the rich not to be rich. In fact, he says, make sure that they're giving thanks to God who gives us all these things for our enjoyment. So apparently, and I struggled with this years ago, uh, I got to kind of smack my head around thinking straight on this. But if, you're, if your finances and your lifestyle is submitted to God, it's okay to enjoy some things, even though the world's not fair and other people don't have those things. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. He doesn't say, tell the rich not to be rich. He says, don't be haughty. Haughty just means don't think that you're better than other people, that you're one up on other people. Don't look down on them because they don't have what you have. And don't put your trust in, in riches because they're fickle. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And you don't take a dime with you. Uh, but rather, he says, be rich in good works. Be generous, ready to share. And that's just what it looks like if you have finances that are submitted to God. Um, and in doing that, you're storing up for yourself a good foundation of treasure in the future. There's a treasure there. there he's saying this comes back on you. Um, it's like money in this world has, has, has uh, some value. It's a temporary value. Uh, it, it can maybe uh, improve your circumstances a little bit and therefore make you happy for a little while. Although uh, there's a lot of studies that show that uh, the changing your circumstances by inheriting a lot of wealth or winning the lottery or whatever doesn't usually, well, that, that, that happiness doesn't last very long and often people end up more miserable than they were before they ever won the money. So it, it has a temporary value. But Paul is saying that it, 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 when you give it away, when you share it, when you're generous with it, when you're Christ-like with it, when you use it for kingdom purposes, when you sacrifice with it, when you bleed with it, well, now you're storing up a treasure in heaven. That's a, a reward. Because now, now that money takes on significance, precisely because you're giving it away and you're doing it in love. You reap what you sow. And whatever is sown in love, you reap for eternity. So this thing that had just limited value in this world takes on eternal value the minute we use it for a kingdom purpose. You're investing in your future in the smartest possible way. Investing in your future. And that's why all these early disciples had no trouble rejoicing. Well, I don't know if they didn't have any trouble. I'm sure they had some trouble once in a while, but they were able to find this joy in the midst of the worst circumstances imaginable. Uh, no, it's not fun being beaten, thrown in a prison, shipwrecked and ridiculed and all the other things that happened to them. And yet they found a way to rejoice. Even in the early church, for the first three centuries or so, when the church was being persecuted, we have these records of Christians who, who just were not only just brave, but joyous as they're being fed to lions for crying out loud. Why? Because it was for the joy set before them. They knew that their suffering didn't have the last word, that their sacrifice didn't have the last word, that their death and their torture and their torment didn't have the last word. And they knew that it was not in vain. They knew that this sacrifice, because it's modeled on Jesus Christ, the author and pioneer of our faith, because of that, they knew that this took on eternal value. Uh, for the joy set before them, they were willing to endure the suffering. And part of the joy that was set before them was seeing that, that this is going to advance the kingdom and it's going to impact lives. And whatever does that lasts forever. It reverberates throughout eternity. It comes back on us throughout eternity. Uh, throughout eternity. Now, maybe some are here thinking, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. That sounds like works righteousness. Hmm? Plagianism. Uh, in no way am I suggesting that we buy our salvation, uh, that we work our way to, the reward is not your salvation. Uh, the New Testament's clear that our salvation is a matter of grace, full stop. We're saved by grace, full stop. Uh, salvation is our reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ, right? And that's something, that relationship, we can't earn it, we can't achieve it, we can't merit it, we can't buy it, we can't accomplish it. The only thing we can do is receive it with gratitude. And it's given to us by grace. In fact, the scripture tells us that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. And that just means that we're unable to get right with God on our own efforts. It's all by grace. 
So if it's all by grace, then how does this talk about rewards fit in? How does it talk about treasures fit in? Well, folks, the, the reward isn't about receiving grace. Like, good job, you received grace. No, that, it's grace because you have nothing to pat yourself on the bat, back for, okay? So the reward's not about receiving of grace. That's about God's just character and generosity. But it's about what do we do with the grace that we've received? What do we do with the love that we've received? What do, do, what, what do we do with this relationship with God that we have gotten by grace through Jesus Christ? See, the way some people teach it, in fact, it's often taught this way, in, especially in Protestant churches. The way it's taught is, is that because we're saved by grace, nothing we do really matters. Uh, nothing you do, however righteous, can ever add to, the, to, to the, the righteousness you have in Christ. And for a lot of these folks, nothing you do uh, can detract from the grace that you have in Jesus Christ, which is just a way of saying your actions don't matter. Your choices don't matter. The actual life that you live here now doesn't matter. Uh, and see, if you get people to believe that, then there's, you'll have a bunch of people who just wait around to die and go to heaven, which is kind of what we have a lot of these days. Uh, you'll get people who, who, who believe that, that their behavior doesn't matter. And so it's not surprising when Bardner comes out with a poll uh, that this is probably 10, 12 years, years ago now, I guess, longer than that probably. I don't have any idea when it happened, but because my time of, sense of time is jacked. But uh, uh, it's, it's, it showed that for about 75% of all who profess to be Christian, when asked by a poster, what do you believe? They identify themselves as Christian. But, but for about three quarters of them, if you ask further questions about what difference does it make in your life, about what you value, about what you choose to do or don't do, it turns out that their, their values and actions and whatever and attitudes are about the same as, as non-Christians. And that's what you get when you convince a bunch of people that salvation is, because it's all grace, nothing we do really matters. Can't add to it, can't detract it. So just sit on the couch and wait to die. See, but the New Testament, it says we're saved by grace, totally by grace, 100% by grace. Yes, true. But it also says that what we do matters. It eternally matters. And the reason is because this relationship we have with, 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 with the Father through Jesus Christ, it's not some kind of a theoretical, hypothetical thing. It's not some kind of just a decree that God makes in the heavenlies. It's a real thing. It's a real relationship. It's as real as any earthly marriage that you could get involved in. And when you get married to an earthly spouse, it, it changes you. It better change you. You got to stop thinking me and start thinking we and, and acting in accordance with your marriage vows. It changes you. And so it is with our relationship with Jesus Christ. More so because he places his spirit inside of us. It trans, he transforms us. And so it, now the question is, what do we do with that? What do we do with that love? Because here's the thing. What we're supposed to do with it is yield to it, surrender to it, right? and, then, and then get our thinking and behavior to line up with it. And the more we yield to that love, the greater our capacity is to receive that love. And the greater our capacity to receive that love, the greater our capacity is to reflect that love outward. And the greater our capacity to reflect that love outward, the more impact we have on the world. And the more impact we're having on the world, well, the greater our reward. Uh, that comes back on us. It reverberates throughout eternity. Uh, the difference that, that, that we make ends up being eternalized because it's consistent with the love that is part of the kingdom. And that should become part of the joy that is set before us. And see, if we're, if we're thinking about this rightly, the last thing it could ever lead to is a sense of pride. Thinking about how God used you to impact others, that can't lead to a, look how good I am. No, because you know that if it wasn't for the grace of, of, of God, you wouldn't be in the position where you can have any impact on, on other people. 
Uh, no, it's all to the grace of God. By, by the grace of God and the love of God, our lives get to count. Our lives here and now get to matter. We are planting seeds that will reap an eternal harvest. And so the, the good news, my main confidence about the joy that's set before me is that it, it's in what Jesus Christ has done for me and done for the whole creation. But part of that good news now is a part about seeing the joy of how God uses me to impact others. Uh, the joy of being a conduit of the good news, a spreader of the good news. The difference maker, Jesus died on the cross and, and, and the difference he made, the joy that he saw set before him involved all of us coming to faith, right? Uh, so the, the difference maker has grabbed us, but part of his grabbing us is that now we get to be difference makers, eternal difference makers. That's what it says means when it says we get to partner with God. Uh, so I, I, I'll, I'll start to come to a close with this. <laughs> uh, on that first Christmas morning, you know, God emptied himself. This is the pattern. This is the pioneer that we're supposed to follow. God emptied himself in order to become a full human being. Uh, and he did that to give us an example of how we're to live. He died on the cross in order to make a difference in our life. Uh, and it was the joy of seeing that that motivated him to do what, what he did. And so Jesus made a difference in all of us. And part of that difference is that so we can become difference makers. And for, our, and it was for the joy set before us, it's seeing that difference that we can make, our partnership with God. Um, but I, and here's my last word. But this will only give you joy. Now listen to this. It will only give you joy. I'll put it this way. If you merely believe that what I just said is true, if, you just, if it stops there, it won't give you joy. A belief is just a belief. Uh, the majority of people in, in American culture believe in some kind of life after death, however foggy their ideas may be. But it doesn't give most of them joy because they don't think about it that much. It's not part of their lived experience. It, it, it doesn't feel real to them. It's just a belief they have. And when they're asked a question, what do you believe? They give that, but it could be that they don't think about it much else when they're not being asked that. It's just not really part of their real life. See, the disciples had joy because this wasn't just this joy set before them. It was set before them. It was real. It was part of their seeking first the kingdom of God, which they did 24-7. Uh, it was the narrative that they lived in. They understood that they are beings who will live forever. And they understood that what they do for the kingdom pays eternal dividends. And, and that was, it was real. It wasn't a mere belief. Uh, it says this, and here's a passage I quote all the time because it's so important and so rarely understood. Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The hypostasis means to have something as a substantial reality. Whatever you hope for, when you have faith, it becomes something solid, real, concrete, tangible. Uh, and, and then he says, uh, that creates a conviction of things that are unseen. The, we're wired this way neurologically that the more concrete we envision something, the more it impacts our life and creates a conviction that it is so. Um, and, and then that motivates our behavior. And what you find in Hebrews 11 is all these folks who saw something ahead of them, they, they, the, the promises of God, the city that they were questing for, and, and it guided their whole life. They never got there in this life, and that was part of the point. They walked by faith, but they walked with a mental vision. It's something we do with, we talk, today we call it our imagination. We envision things. I, I uh, when I taught at Bethel, I would often, in fact, all the time, I, I kept myself motivated to keep on teaching the same course, sometimes twice a semester. That gets old really quick. But I would find the three students, or two or three students that I thought were the most interested in theology, and because I knew that most of the students there are taking the class because it's a required class. And I hate doing things just because it's required. It bugs me. It, I, it, it needs to have some significance. So I would like imagine these three students or two students or in the, some places, one student, 
wants to. But I would envision, uh, I, I believe by faith that this class is making a difference on the way they view God, the way they view themselves, or whatever. And I would mentally envision that being played out over a lifetime. Even if I only make a little difference right here, a tiny little difference, if you, if you play that over a lifetime, well, you've made a big difference in their lives. And in the meantime, because of the difference that you made in their life, now they're making a difference in other people's lives, and so on and so on and so on. And, and so that feels significant. There's a purpose to this. And that's how I stayed in the game. I do the same things when I'm writing books. I, I envision it having an impact upon certain readers, and that gives me satisfaction. What this message is saying is we need to do that. We need to eternalize that process. Eternalize that process. See yourself living in this long narrative where you get to be a difference maker. Uh, so I, I, I want to close. Well, I'm going to make announcements after this and we'll have a closing prayer. But I, I want to have a, a little brief exercise right now. Uh, if it helps, you can close your eyes. You don't need to. But I want you to think of this one person that you have been kind to or showed love to in the last week or in the recent past. It could be something really trivial, real small, a kind word, or whatever. I'm sure. Just, just let, let it come to mind. And now ask the Holy Spirit. Here's this one little act. How does that reverberate? What does it look like? The Holy Spirit's so creative, and we all do this differently, but it all takes place in our inner sanctuary, what the church tradition calls the inner sanctum, uh, our imagination where the things of God become concrete and experiential. And so ask the Spirit to show you, uh, whether through word or through picture or through a sense or however, what does it look like for that to pay eternal dividends? That difference you make, uh, maybe is a one-inch difference here, but in 10 years, that's a one-foot difference. And in, in 40 years, that's a 10-feet difference. And now that person's made impact on others. The, whatever we do with love, we take with us, and it's the only thing we take with us. Everything else we leave behind, but the love goes with us. And that, if that becomes real to us, it can give joy in any circumstance. Uh, what I found this week as I was preparing for this message is that, that um, it was, um, I, I, it's an easy thing to forget. I have done that in the past, but this idea of seeing the significance of your own life, I found myself unconsciously resisting it because it felt prideful. And now I just see how wrong that is. <laughs> no, it's, Maybe, maybe some of you folks are maybe thinking, well, my life's not very significant. I, I, don't, I haven't done much for Jesus. I haven't done much for the kingdom. And to that I'll say, maybe it is the case that you need to be more involved. And, and, and so get, get the joy set before you and let that motivate you to get more involved. But it's also true that most people, uh, I think, underestimate your significance. You're far more significant than you realize. The number of lives you touch is, it's the whole wonderful life, you know, theme. Uh, we often don't realize all the lives that we affect because we're just being normal and we grow into that. But there's, there's a place in our life where we need to take that and cherish it and thank God for that and enjoy that. Uh, see it as the joy set before you because that is what motivates us towards kingdom work. All right, I want to remind you that we, the prayer rooms are open. Uh, if you have any need that could use prayer, whether it's on this topic or some other totally unrelated topic, I encourage you to get that. So our prayer ministers are available um, after the service. And uh, we have uh, the MuseCast, which is on Tuesday at 4 o'clock, where uh, folks take this message and they go a little deeper with it, ask questions, push back on it, and do all sorts of stuff. And of course, we've got our gathering groups, and I encourage you to, be, uh, to participate in, in those as well. Uh, you get to talk to other people. Uh, part of Woodland Hills body 
some of them from other parts of the world, and, and go a little deeper with the, the, the message. Uh, I'll close with this. Here's a book from, uh, or a prayer from the Common Book of Prayer. It's a prayer that uh, is being prayed by Christians all around the world today. And it goes like this. And I'll just leave it as kind of a benediction on y'all. God of hope, you call us home from the exile of selfish oppression to the freedom of justice, the balm of healing, and the joy of sharing. Make us strong to join you in your holy work as friends of strangers and victims, companions of those who others shun, whom others shun, and as the happiness of those whose hearts are broken. May we be that. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Love you. Uh, stay in touch. Stay in tune. Stay plugged in. And I really do hope you have a joyous uh, Christmas, uh, a joy that's based on nothing other than the fact that we've got good news that makes us joyful. God bless you guys. See you next week.